0: The entrepreneurial path is about unreasonable thinking, challenging the norm, challenging the way it has to be. You don't have to charge that way. There are other ways you could charge prices. You don't have to deliver that way. But it's combining that willingness to think a little different with discipline. And the discipline piece I think is especially critical. Many of the young folks that I work with they don't have any problem with being a little unreasonable, but then bring in the discipline to, you know, you got to make six sales calls mm-hmm. this morning before you do anything else. You've got to understand the numbers in your business. And so I'd say it's be a little nuts, be a little unreasonable, push the edge a little bit, try different approaches, but combine that with a level of discipline and all that you do.
1: Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White and our next guest is Dr. Michael Morris. Dr. Morris is a professor of entrepreneurship and social innovation at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, where he leads the Global Partnership for Poverty and Entrepreneurship. As the founder of numerous programs in the US and around the world to support entrepreneurship and author of 13 books, 24 book chapters, and more than 130 articles in peer-reviewed journals, Dr. Morris is truly a thought leader in the field. Today, we talk about his background and his work as a pioneer in entrepreneurship education. So Mike, thank you for joining me today on InFactor.
0: No, it's my pleasure. It's great to be with you.
1: So we've known each other quite some time from PhDs at Virginia Tech to working together when we were both in the greater Cincinnati area. And we've developed a number of programs together. And it's, and, you know, on my part, it's been an honor to be a part of this journey with you as we've worked to advance entrepreneurship education over 20 some plus years. (laughs) It makes us sound pretty old. I don't want to go into all the years, but it's really really been great working with you. And I'm really excited today to have you on the program and to get to share what you're up to, some of your journey and what you're doing right now with our listeners.
0: Well, thanks, Rebecca. No, it's a pleasure to be here and work with you all these years and This series you got with these entrepreneurs is uh, really exciting.
1: Thank you. You just have to promise not to tell any of the conference stories. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started into some of the things you've done and you're working on right now, which is is, you've had a phenomenal career so far, and I know there's a lot more to come. I'd like to bring our listeners up to speed about a little bit about, about you personally and few of these things we've talked about, but there's there's a lot about you I still don't know after all these years. Where did you grow up, and what did you do before you became an educator, and why did you decide to pursue this field? I know your PhD is in marketing.
0: Well, I actually grew up in a military family, so we moved a lot, which I guess got in my blood because I've continued to sort of experiment with new things and move to new places throughout my career but it was a neat way to grow up in one sense. I mean, you didn't have any roots, which was unfortunate, but you were constantly encountering new places and new people. And so I think that the environment and, you know, my father and a lot of the fathers of the kids I grew up with were World War II heroes. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they instilled both a sense of adventure and discipline and hard work and other kind of things and and many of us. So I think that was sort of formative for me. You know, and then when I got to college, I was also in the military myself for a little while. And so I was trying to catch up and graduate close to the time when my high school colleagues graduated. And I ended up studying economics and took everything I could in economics. And it wasn't business economic. It was sort of pure economics. Mm-hmm. And I had a professor who the whole reason I ended up focusing on, I don't think I picked a major until like a year and a half before graduating and then hustled to finish. But the guy who inspired me to pursue economics became a mentor. Mm-hmm. And I was... Picked up a master's degree in uh, in economics as well and and was fixing to become an economist for the state of Ohio. And I go by to say goodbye to him. And he has me in his office and and says, Ah, you don't, you don't want to take that job. Why don't you hang around here and get an MBA? And I said, I don't. And he said, Well, I spoke to some people at HBCU, a historically black college. and they'll give you a full-time teaching job teaching economics and you can pick up your MBA from us at the same time. And so I did that. And teaching economics at a historically black college to a lot of great kids, but from inner city Detroit and Cleveland and teaching economics was a real lesson in terms of how to teach. And, Uh And So that's probably what inspired me to become a teacher. I got to the end of that year and The kids, you know, you go to say goodbye and, you know, there's not a lot of times you get like an ovation yeah, from students. And so that kind of made me think that maybe I had a path that I was supposed to take. So I ended up going to Virginia and teaching at a small college and working on a Ph.D. and trying to do both full time. And that's where I met you at Virginia Tech. uh, I wanted to study entrepreneurship because that was rooted in my economics. I, I was always frustrated because economists, when you take basic economics, you you learn about the four factors of production, land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. And the problem was all the professors and courses talked about land, labor, and capital, but they didn't talk about entrepreneurship. No and entrepreneurship. That seemed like the most, to me, was always the most intriguing. And back in those days, you know, I was sort of the free market economists and all my colleagues were like socialist economists or Marxist economists or labor economists or whatever and urban. And so when I went to get a PhD, my interest was entrepreneurship and they didn't have entrepreneurship PhD programs back then. And so the closest I could get was marketing because marketing had a whole sub area that looked at innovation and new product development and that sort of thing. And so, and there was a, I sort of paralleled, I took a lot of management courses and there was an entrepreneurship guy, Max Wartman, who was, you know, I'd taken class from him. He was sort of a father figure to many of us. So I got my PhD in, in industrial marketing or business to business marketing, which was a little closer to what I was really interested in. And so then when I got a job with ABD, you used to be able to leave college without your dissertation, but I was working on my dissertation, but I took a job at Old Dominion University and I went to the department chair the minute I finished my dissertation and said, hey, I wanna teach an entrepreneurship course. And he said, no. And I said, no, no, hey, I wanna teach an entrepreneurship course. And he said, no. And so we finally agreed that I could teach this course if it was an overload for which I wasn't paid. And so almost from getting my PhD entrepreneurship has been my passion and marketing was kind of a vehicle to to get there. In the early years, most of my teaching and research was marketing, but every semester there'd be a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more until eventually it was 90% entrepreneurship and 10% marketing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great story. A lot of things I'd love to dig into in there. Interestingly, you mentioned your military Family, and you've done work with veterans. Do you think that there's kind of some different perspectives about this? Do you think when someone comes out of the military, they're well suited to a career as an entrepreneur, or do you think that that plays a factor in, in? Oh, yeah,
0: a huge factor. I mean, veterans actually start businesses at a meaningfully higher rate than society on average, and they succeed at a higher rate. And I think that's because there's a lot of parallels. The commitment to the mission. Well, you've got to have the same commitment to your venture as a mission. Discipline, resilience. We think about the military as somewhat bureaucratic, but when they're in the middle of battle, they're not bureaucratic. They're adaptive. They're resilient. They're 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 innovative. They figure out ways, you know, to protect the tanks when they're not ready for the roadside bombs. And The hard work, the fact that you've got your your brothers back, you know, translates well into the entrepreneurial arena. So Mm -hmm. I think there are many elements there that do prepare veterans. And I mean, they understand the, the role of the individual and yet the role of the team. So we always saw that it was sort of a natural path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, you know, here in Tampa Bay, we have a big deal Air Force Base and there's a number of different special operations forces out of here. And we have some amazing entrepreneurs come out come out of there. And I know you've done some, some really great work with veterans over the years. You also mentioned a work ethic. And, you know, it's interesting because I didn't realize how much you and I had in common in terms of you know, I taught a little bit before I went back and got my PhD. And I also left ABD, which was really difficult, <laughs> but fa- managed to finish. And then you and I both have been sort of program developers in our field, in addition to, you know, the things that the typical faculty member does besides teaching and and scholarship, we've built programs, and I want to dig into a little bit more to some of the work you've done in particular with groups. You've done a lot with women entrepreneurs, you've done a lot with veterans. I know you're a machine because you've gone from campus to campus and started a number of programs, so you've been a, an academic entrepreneur, but I know for a number of years you worked in locations like South Africa, Haiti, several urban U.S. cities, and you worked with Native Americans, I believe. But you've also worked a lot with impoverished groups to advance entrepreneurship in a lot of different contexts. And recently, you launched the Global Partnership for Poverty and Entrepreneurship. And you now have over 100 universities participating in this, which is phenomenal not surprising because i know you and how hard you work but could you tell our listeners a little bit about this what this is and what led you to this focus
0: sure well i've had the fortune and i think you have as well but you know when i came out with a phd and tried to teach entrepreneurship there were no textbooks there were there was you know the original material i used was a compendium called the encyclopedia of entrepreneurship which was a book of sort of scholarly readings by Carl Vesper uh-huh. and Don Sexton and and some of these guys that was as good as you could get in terms of a book i mean there were books of courses on small business management but that wasn't really what i was interested in but i've been able to sit and as of you but sort of on the front row watching the incredible emergence of entrepreneurship from eight programs to virtually every university in the United States and college has some kind of entrepreneurship initiative over, you know, 4,000 just in the U.S. And I think as I've watched that, I certainly have spent lots of time in program building and working with individuals and others on the glory side of entrepreneurship. And The glory side is the SpaceX's and the Ubers and the Facebook's. Mm -hmm. But those glory ventures that dominate today's textbooks and readings and much of the research are less than 1% of startups. The other 99% are hugely important and yet sort of relegated, if not denigrated. And I've always seen entrepreneurship, you know, the, the magic of entrepreneurship in terms of Creating SpaceX or Uber is certainly, in a Schumpeterian kind of perspective, an amazing potential for society. But what's intrigued me far more was the empowering potential of entrepreneurship for those in more adverse circumstances. Nothing frustrates me more in this day and age when I hear somebody get up in front of other people and go, well, entrepreneurs are born. And if you're not born, you know, there's like there's some gene, entrepreneur gene or something. Yeah. What's beautiful about entrepreneurship is it's democratic. It's open to anybody and everybody. And not anybody or everybody could have created SpaceX or Uber, but they can create something. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And as academics and scholars and teachers, our role is to take that something and help it be more than maybe. You know, a failure or a, a marginal business. But I just profoundly believe that entrepreneurship is, is about empowering anybody and everybody to a better life, to control over your life, to, you know, an identity, to an ability to give back. And so much of our work has had this sub theme of entrepreneurship under conditions of adversity. It's included. Early on, editing a a journal that was started in an HBCU, a historically black college, the Journal of Developmental Entrepreneurship, and trying to expand that and and doing a whole lot of programs, you know, and, and sort of by diving into that, it's sort of my natural instinct, but it also brought to me a huge appreciation for the reality that if you're going to teach entrepreneurship, there has to be substance, there has to be content, there has to be rich intellectual substance, but that experiential learning is a core, is a key to to successfully educating people around entrepreneurship. And so we've created a lot of community engagement programs, as you mentioned, for women, for the poor, for Native Americans, for other adverse people who have more of a struggle, a, a bit of adversity to overcome in creating something. And so at the back end of my career, that's all I'm doing. So my whole focus now is whether it's research or or teaching or the community programs we do, the things to connect scholars. It's all about poverty and entrepreneurship as a pathway out of poverty.
1: Well, that's really exciting. And I think you've recently moved to Notre Dame to have a platform for that, right? They've been Will and you're you're actually not in the business school, right? You're in a different college. Well, for the
0: first time in my career, I'm in a basically a public policy school, the the Keogh School of Global Affairs, which is an eclectic, a very exciting, intellectual. A lot of intellectual, you know, clashes that are intriguing and you learn from. I mean, our faculty has the Obama's chief of staff and. You know, interesting characters like the uh, Paul Ryan is associated with the faculty, the, the former head of the, you know, Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. But it's a place that's committed to addressing big social problems on a global scale, whether that's hunger, whether that's the environment. But poverty is a central theme. And so this is a, a wonderful platform for me. They're letting me run with what I want to run with. And the Global Partnership for Poverty and Entrepreneurship is, is is one piece of that.
1: Right. I love, you mentioned transformation, and that has been one of the most rewarding things for me about this career is to watch the transformation of people, students and others that I've had the chance to work with. I know it has been for you as well. One of my favorite quotes is from the late Jeff Timmons. It's on the wall in our center, and it goes, more than ever, we are convinced that the creation and liberation of human energy through entrepreneurship is the single largest transformational force on the planet today. And you know, I know you have talked a lot about transformation. I've heard that in a number of your presentations. And I know in a recent lecture on entrepreneurship and poverty, you talked about entrepreneurship as true potential. For empowerment and transformation. So as we as we look at, I, I guess I have two questions. One, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about about poverty and how s- sometimes not having a lot of resources can actually be an advantage in entrepreneurship. It doesn't feel like an advantage, maybe, but but there may be some advantage which sounds you know might not sound right to a lot of people but i'm curious about that do you feel like that do you feel like poverty is a launching pad for entrepreneurship like we talked about some of the other some of the other experiences
0: well i wouldn't go that far we've done work conceptual work that when you talk about poverty first of all you have to get past you know Poverty isn't a characteristic of a person. It's a characteristic of their situation. Mm-hmm. And so it's the situation that's causing the problem, not the person. And mm-hmm. the person has rich entrepreneurial potential. But poverty, and there are aspects of the poverty experience, we might call them poverty assets, that, so you're used to setbacks, which creates a kind of resiliency. hmm you know, you keep getting back up off the floor. I mean, you're hit with eviction from your house, you're hit with some crazy medical bill, because you don't have proper health insurance, yet you have chronic health problems, you're hit with a with kids, you know, arrested for something that maybe they didn't do, or, you know, you just, you have these setbacks, and that creates a kind of resiliency. That's certainly consistent with entrepreneurship similarly you have to get clever you don't have the resources to pay the rent and i'll say to pay this month's medical bill and also you know so you've got to be able to you know what we call bricolage but in a poverty context in terms of use the things at your disposal use the resources at hand use them in non-conventional ways and get through and so yeah, I think those things are consistent with entrepreneurship, and part of our challenge in the programs we run is is to get people to make that connection mm-hmm. because they don't think of those things as having anything to do with entrepreneurship. It's just survival, right? And so, at the same time, you know, poverty is multidimensional. It's it's not just a lack of money. It's often a weaker education. It's literacy challenges, financial, technological, functional literacy. It's transportation issues, housing issues, it's single moms and childhood pregnancies and just this whole, you know, multifaceted set of issues, not just money. And so we've come up with this concept we call the liability of poorness, which Mm -hmm. we use that term just because in entrepreneurship, there are two very popular notions commonly known notions of liability of smallness and liability of newness as things any entrepreneur has to overcome. Well, our argument is, if all entrepreneurs have to under, overcome the liability of newness and the liability of smallness, they don't have legitimacy, they don't know their roles, they don't have any bargaining power with suppliers. They, well, the poor have an added burden in trying to address those liabilities because of the liability of poorness, which which includes literacy shortcomings, it includes a scarcity mindset that makes it hard to, you know, you go to a poor person and you say, well, the first thing you gotta do is write a five-year plan. And they go, wait a minute, a five-year plan, five-year financial projections. I live in the here and now. I'm trying to figure out whether to pay the rent bill or the medical bill this week. so there has to be an adjustment to get me to start to to be able to plan ahead yeah. and think strategically and they suffer from non, what we call non-business distractions so it's hard to concentrate on your business when your aunt has moved in with you and has a, a chronic illness and you don't have enough food this week and and you have these and the landlords kicking you out and you know you're trying to not just run a business that may be a cleaning service, but think about how we might grow and move into new market segments that, well, no, you don't have any room for that because these distractions. And then the last part is what we call a a lack of a safety net. You you have nothing to fall back on. So when you hit things like COVID, you're in deep doo-doo because you just don't have the, everything you have is in the business or is in inventory or, you know, but there's no safety net and nothing, you're not necessarily bankable. Your friends and family have given you anything they have, but so you take those factors and they create, I guess my point to your question is, yes, there are some things that work for you, but you've got these other liabilities that really make it tougher.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, everybody suffers from distractions, but those can be crippling distractions and so really when you're working as we often do with students when you're working with these groups you have to really look at the the whole complex set of variables that they're dealing with and try to you know not only teach these basic business principles of how to how to develop a business but also you know help them develop a new lens through which they really look at the world. And does some of that is some of that about helping them believe that it's possible and helping them get beyond the limitations that they might see?
0: Some, but I have now had the privilege to work with thousands of low-income people trying to start things, not just here, but in other countries and develop and developing contexts. The the issue of self-efficacy or confidence and belief that I can do this, it varies, but it hasn't tended to be the overwhelming of the issue. Now, believing how big it can be or how much I can manage something bigger, yeah, that, that's an issue, but I think it's, that's not the issue. The issue is, for me, the toolkit that we use to teach conventional entrepreneurship has to be adapted significantly. We need different tools and concepts when we're talking about some of these basic businesses, survival kinds of ventures that can ultimately produce a decent income, but only with, you know, meaningful adaptation and and learning and adjustment and the tools to know how to do that. And so things like the Lean Startup or the Business Model Canvas, I think, are, are not necessarily appropriate tools relative to some of the things we've tried to develop.
1: So a lot of this partnership with these now over 100 universities is about their contributions from other thought leaders around this space and how this can be done. Is that correct? Could you say that? Yeah, and that's, I mean,
0: one of my favorite things about the field of entrepreneurship. And I know you have the same experience, but, you know, many of us have come up with neat concepts and frameworks and tools and approaches, but it's never proprietary. It's a sharing community. And so the idea that here's a neat tool or framework or perspective I've come up with, for me, it's kind of a joke to put a little C next to it on a PowerPoint slide, you know, it's about trying to make a difference in the world. And that means sharing these ideas and this intellectual property. And that's to me what the global partnership is about is encouraging much more collaboration and sharing around one of the most vexing issues in the world.
1: Yeah, collectively, we're going to be able to get a lot farther than individually. I agree with that. We're nearing the end of 2020 as we talk, and it's been a pretty tough year. (laughs) And due to COVID, I think I saw that poverty rates have gone up globally for the first time since 1998. So that means what you're working on is very timely. Do you have any context to add around what's happened with respect to poverty and COVID?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the great challenges today is our failure to really understand the interplay between some of the big issues and problems we face. And so, you know, I'm a huge believer in protecting the environment, you know, but I want to protect the environment in a way, you know, you you may have to make some compromises in the kinds of development that you do, but you don't want to impoverish more people in the process. And, The COVID thing, I think, is a good example. I don't believe we've even begun to see the real carnage that is going to. I mean, think about how many, just in the United States, much less governments in other parts of the world, but think of how many tax dollars have not been collected in the last six months. And that isn't going to change for the next five, six months. And so that means state governments, local governments, Are going to get hit hard once the reality of our tax revenue so that means a lot of public programs that means a lot of things that you do for the community a lot of things people take for granted are going to get cut back Mm -hmm. and meanwhile those in poverty that have started to find their way out maybe through entrepreneurship are going to be set back significantly so it is not a great time in terms of the real realities of how we've dealt with this pandemic
1: yeah, it's been a really interesting time. And it's for those of us who look at the world through an entrepreneurial lens, we see plenty of opportunity because there are so many problems out there. But for those like you're talking about where the, you know, the problems just keep piling on, and this has made it much worse. I think it's it's a really tough time. And again, a very timely. Your project is very timely. So you've talked, I think, in some of the lectures and things you've given around poverty and entrepreneurship about some research that suggests where entrepreneurship rates are higher, poverty rates are lower. Could you talk a little bit about that and what's happening there?
0: Yeah. You know, one of the big challenges is there's just a lack of data. The problem becomes evident when you simply think about in the United States, which is probably the most prolific generator of data in the world not just the U.S. government, but industry and, and so forth, you know, there's still, in entrepreneurship, a shocking lack of data. I mean, I think the Kauffman Foundation has tried to fill some of that void, but, you know, that's a couple of drops of water in the ocean. The, we don't know the answer to basic questions. What is the actual startup rate, venture startup rate by people in poverty, by people in disadvantaged circumstances? And part of the reason we don't know is if you do capture a startup in a database, when you start a business, you register it, you don't write down, I'm poor. So, so you have no way to track that. Moreover, a huge number of startups are never captured in the real data. You know, Many of the entrepreneurs that I work with in poverty you know, they start making candles or they start making baby bibs or they start cleaning homes or whatever they do, but it's not a registered business. It's like, you know, it's, I don't like this term at all, but like all buzzwords, it's now part of the lexicon, but people talk about a a side hustle. It's like that other irritating word pivot, but (laughs) You know how that goes in terms of once something catches on. But the reality is there's a lot of that activity that just isn't captured. And so then when we fast forward to some other fundamental questions like what are the failure rates of businesses started by the poor? We don't know. What percentage of businesses started the, started by the poor achieve any kind of growth versus simply su- they sustain the person? We don't know. So I just think the knowledge gaps, we live in an age where everybody on the right and the left is saying evidence, evidence, make decisions based on evidence, but it doesn't seem like most of the decisions being made by those same people are necessarily evidence-based. And we don't have a lot of evidence in terms of poverty. There are people who will argue entrepreneurship is bad for the poor. There are people Mm -hmm. in our discipline who will argue The kind of ventures started by the poor are a waste of societal resources. They're inefficient. They're not creating patents and innovation. They're not employing large numbers of people per venture. They are employing large numbers of people. It's just not that many in a given Mm -hmm. venture. But Mm -hmm. so there's just a lot of misnomers and misconceptions and myths, I think about the reality of, of what entrepreneurship can do for not just the poor, but other people in adverse circumstances, you know, the formerly incarcerated, abused spouses that have to go live in shelters. Where, where do they go from there? Well, they can go to entrepreneurship. And so it's shocking how little we know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You brought up a lot of really interesting points there. You know, there are a lot of people, I think, that question capitalism and entrepreneurship is inherently capitalistic in its roots. And they suggest that capitalism creates inequality. And you're really saying that capitalism is one way for us to reach a better standard of living, all of us.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of it is also seems to me is sometimes terminology, Mm -hmm. you know, Capitalism sounds like a bad word to some of these folks, but free markets. Well, that doesn't sound as bad, right? Right. So, but when we get past the lexicon, I think the evidence, I mean, you said something a few moments ago, Rebecca, that is really important. Poverty rates are up for the first time on a so we have to distinguish on a global scale developed economies from underdeveloped or developing economies. Poverty rates in developed economies have been stagnant since nineteen sixty. Since President Johnson declared a war of poverty in the Mm mid-60s, they've hovered, they've gone up and down modestly, but basically hovered right around 13, 14% in spite of a trillion dollars a year now being spent on poverty. But in the rest of the world, in the developing world, poverty rates have actually come down since 1998 until COVID, as Mm -hmm. you said right? Well, there's only one reason that's happened. There's only one overarching reason that that's happened. There may be multiple reasons and that's free enterprise and free markets and capitalism. And so, and especially entrepreneurship. If you look at what's happened in China, entrepreneurship has played a huge role. If you look at what's happened in India, entrepreneurship has played a huge role. And so I don't want to, one's always tempted to say, hey, just take a look at places like, Venezuela or whatever, but I think it's better to look at the positive evidence in terms of the water level has gone up.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in there, I think, to talk about. My husband's a lawyer, you know that. And we talk a lot about the the whole the need for the rule of law for entrepreneurship to work. And so in some contexts, it's much more challenging. But what I find fascinating. I went to Cuba last year or in February, and I was just amazed at the level of entrepreneurship there, the the enterprising entrepreneurial mindset among people that were in such dire conditions. And it, you know, it made me think of that as I was listening to you talk. People seem to find a way to be entrepreneurial. And so kudos to you and all the work that you're doing for helping in that because I think it's you know almost human nature in a lot of ways and unfortunately the circumstances of the world get in the way of that for a lot I, of
0: people. You know I obviously agree with you but I I'd go further. I think entrepreneurship is a natural path for somebody in poverty, for somebody in disadvantaged circumstances. And I think adversity you know look at the amazing entrepreneurship that happened in World War II because circumstances said we got to have a solution. So I think that does happen in Cuba. I think if you could take the oppressive blanket off the people in Cuba, y- you'd see an explosion that mm-hmm. would make Miami look, you know, like a part-time activity. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's sad that it's held back, but it, you can't, it creeps out. It yeah. entrepreneurship is always there. It's just how the channels it takes.
1: Right. And so, again, programs like what you've dedicated yourself to and I as well are enablers, I think. And that's what makes some of this so gratifying, I think. So, Mike, I would love to talk more, but I'm going to let you get back. I know you're in finals and we're both wrapping up a semester. I I do want to ask you before we close, I know you've worked with a lot of students of entrepreneurship, whether they're in university programs or in the communities. And if you had, if you had one piece of advice to leave with our listeners who are mostly students of entrepreneurship, either practicing entrepreneurs who want to learn more or university students, what would that be about being successful and and embracing entrepreneurship?
0: Well, there's so many, but I think if I had to pick one, I think people should believe in their dreams. But to me, entrepreneurship, always, but to me, the entrepreneurial path is about unreasonable thinking, challenging the norm, challenging the way it has to be. You don't have to charge that way. There are other ways you could charge prices. You don't have to deliver that way. But it's combining that willingness to think a little different with discipline. And the discipline piece, I think, is especially critical. Many of the young folks that I work with, they don't have any problem with being a little unreasonable, but then bringing the discipline to, you know, you got to make six sales calls Mm -hmm. this morning before Mm -hmm. you do anything else. You've got to understand the numbers in your business. And so I'd say it's be a little nuts, be a little unreasonable, push the edge a little bit, try different approaches, but combine that with, a level of discipline in in all that you do.
1: Yeah. You know, the discipline almost gives you the right to do that, right? (laughs) You know, if you've got the discipline, then you can do it in in the best way. Great advice. So, Mike, you know, where can our listeners, I know you're at Notre Dame, but where can they find out more about your work on poverty if they're interested in following up?
0: Well, they certainly can email me at morri24 at nd.edu. And the Global Partnership for Poverty and Entrepreneurship, if they just search at gppe.nd.edu, they'll find the site. And if they want to join, let me know and they, they can join. I'll always push our our book on, it's called Poverty and Entrepreneurship in Developed Economies, but I, I'd encourage them to reach out to me.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mike. This has been great.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. And thanks for all you do.